702. The Naked Scientist. It is that time. Dr. Chris Smith is with us for The Naked Scientist. Give us a call on 011-830702. Your SMS is 31702. Tweet us at Rilebukhile M at Radio 702 using the hashtag 702 Afternoons. And the WhatsApp line 072-702-1702. Happy Monday, Dr. Chris. How are you? Happy Monday to you. I'm very good. How are you? Good. Just uh, let's see if we can get your levels a bit higher there because I was struggling uh, to hear you. Um, so, Doctor, there are always so many interesting developments that are taking place in the world. And I love following some of these fascinating accounts that speak about those things. But before I jump into any of my questions, let's jump straight into all of the listeners' questions. This one came in very early saying, please ask the naked scientist. I recently found out that I have hepatitis B over 3,000 viral load. My doctor said I need to start being on chronic medication. Is this correct? I asked my doctor what food and drinks should I stop consuming. He said I can consume anything. I said including alcohol. He said yes, I can drink alcohol as long as I don't drink like a fish. I feel like there's something wrong here. Please advise what should and shouldn't I consume. Hello. Well, hepatitis B is really common. Around the world, there are millions of people who have hepatitis B and they could have hepatitis B in several ways. One is they could have it acutely. The other is they could have it chronically, in other words, for the long term. And so when you first began to read this answer, I began to wonder, well, is this person chronically infected with hep B, meaning they've got it for a long time, had it for a long time and will have it for a long time? Or is this a new infection? And the first thing we always check when we receive samples from someone who is hepatitis B positive in our laboratory is we would repeat the test to make sure that we know what the status of this person is because someone, when they catch hepatitis B, it may be that they're going to have this for a period of time and then their body will clear it, which when an adult catches the infection is what happens 80% of the time or more. Whereas if they caught this when they were very young or they caught it and they were immunosuppressed, for example, you can then develop chronic infection. And what that means is that the immune system doesn't manage to kick the virus out of the body and it keeps on growing. And this means that it's growing in the liver and it's injuring the liver and the liver is regenerating itself. And this is a way in which you can get progressive liver damage over a long period of time. And that can lead to cirrhosis and that can lead to liver failure. So when the person has a blood test, what they're referring to a viral load is that we would monitor a patient and we would see how many copies of the virus DNA there are in the bloodstream. And this gives us a marker for how active that person's disease is and if they're responding to any therapy that's been given or not. But again, it matters whether this is a new infection or an old infection. And I would say the first stage here is to get to the bottom of this and find out, is this a new infection? Is this an old infection? And what level of impact on the liver has it had? Because proper tests need to be done to look at what uh, injury, if any, has uh, been sustained by the liver and then embark on a course of appropriate management to maintain this person with the best possible health, the best liver function and the best prospects. And all those things need careful workup by an experienced hepatologist, liver specialist or virologist who can look after them. All right. Uh, another question that says, hi, 702, can you ask Dr. Chris, why is it that if you plant a mango tree from a seed, example, Tommy Atkins, it does not produce the same mango you planted. The fruit comes out different. Ah, well, 
I've done this, um, not with a mango, but with a squash this year. We, in fact, my wife um, chopped open a squash from the supermarket and then chucked the seeds into a planter we made in the flower bed and we've had loads of squashes come off. But they look very different to the ones that we bought from the supermarket. They taste different as well. The reason is that when you get squashes that are bought from a supermarket or mangoes that have been bred that way they are genetically going to be different than their progeny and the reason is that when an insect comes along and pollinates a plant it's bringing in pollen from another member of that plant family and it is mixing up the genes of the incoming plant and the plant you've got and so the the new progeny are going to have some different characteristics in the same way that you mix up your genes and you make a baby with a person of the opposite sex and that baby looks a bit like you but not the same and mm. it's the product of sex and so when plants have sex they will produce offspring that are different genetically different and therefore might have different characteristics and when it comes to fruits and things they could have some different characteristics as well same with chilies if you if you buy some chilies in the shop and you plant those you can grow new chili plants but you're not guaranteed to get the same level of spiciness the same looking chilies that the original chili that you got them from came from because you're going to get hybrids mm. all right here's a voice note Good day, Rilebukhine. This is Gordon in Boxburg here. I hope I put this question well to the to the doctor there. Um, if we have two cars on a flat road and with no wind, um, same friction and whatever, um, and they both have enough fuel to do 600 kilometers, but now the other one is driving at 120 kilometers per hour and the other one is doing uh, 240 kilometers per hour, um, there's there's a theory that the faster you travel, the more fuel your your, your car consumes. So I want to know: is that true? Will the other one not make it because it's travelling at a higher speed? Um, and now we can also put things into a consideration like um, uh, momentum. So if the other one runs out of fuel, would the momentum carry it to a distance and stuff like that? Thank you. Hello, doctor. Oh, it's all about. My name is Manda from Pretoria that. North. Uh, go ahead, doctor. It's all about drag, in other words, friction from the air. We're not talking about day medna or anything here, that's a different <laughs> kind of drag. This is the drag you get when you push something through the air because you're pushing billions of air molecules out of the way and they all weigh something. And so if you're pushing on something and making it move, you're doing work on it. If you're doing work, you're burning energy. And so the more things you push out of the way, the more work you're doing and therefore the more energy you have to use. So if you've got a car which is going along at a certain speed, then it's doing a certain amount of work against the air to move the air out of the way so the car can move through the air. If you make the car do that faster, actually it's not a, the same relationship. Although you are moving the same car, but you're doing it faster, you are actually incurring much greater losses because the drag forces are proportional not just to the speed, but to the speed cubed. And so the faster you go, the faster you will burn fuel. And if you've got something going at the same rate cubed, if you double the speed, you'll actually use eight times as much fuel. So your car going at double the speed, although it's got the same amount of fuel and it's an identical car, it will actually burn through its fuel eight times faster and therefore it wouldn't make as long a trip as the car that's going at a more sedate speed. The optimum speed to drive along at for best fuel economy is about 80 kilometres an hour. 
Because at that point, you're making good road progress, but you're also not doing too much work against the atmosphere, and your car's rev range is going to be ideal for most engines, and this gives you the best fuel economy at that sort of rolling speed. Any faster than that, and you're actually beginning to suffer in terms of the range of your vehicle. Thank you so much for that question. Let's take a call. Is it Lilo or Lilo? Hello? Hello? Hi, is it Lilo or Lilo? Lilo, M-L-I-N-O. Lilo. Oh, Lilo. My apologies, Lilo. Go ahead. Yes. We're big nuts. Yes, go ahead. My question is, how did mankind discover that food must be cooked before that's an interesting yeah. one doctor well in fact some of the earliest evidence for people cooking things is in the wonderful archaeological record that's in south africa we are pretty sure that people have been cooking things for a million plus years when they first began to adopt and use fire and that people pretty quickly realized that fire and heat changes things and they would have found that it changed meat in a way that made it safer for them less likely to get food poisoning tastes nice and liberates more calories from certain other foods as well if you take certain crops or, or hard materials which are pretty indigestible and you heat them up you can change the chem chemical composition of those things so you liberate more calories so people would have embraced fire initially by accident and when there was a lightning storm or something that started a bushfire, they would have then realised the potential of fire for heat, warmth, protection, light, safety. And there would inevitably have been some animals that got cooked by accident and people would have thought, well, they smell all right, we'll have a bit of that. They try it and think, well, it's all right, isn't it? Um, maybe we should do this more often. And th then, then they begin to make fire part and parcel of their day-to-day -day activities and cooking becomes second nature. And I think that's really how it happened. And those people who would have embraced fire in that way would have done better. They would have been more successful. So culturally, they would have passed on that particular knowledge and others would have adopted it. And as a result, it became entrenched. And so we traditionally cook food. Not all food benefits from being cooked, but most food does because you can make it safer from a food poisoning point of view and liberate more calories from it that you might not otherwise be able to access if you just let it raw. So then question on just to follow up on, on what you've just said, if, for example, you are boiling vegetables to make a vegetable soup, do the nutrients disappear only if you spill out the water or they dis some nutrients disappear by virtue of you cooking the thing? Both. And if you take some nutrients and heat them up, they will degrade the more time they spend at a higher temperature. And the higher the temperature, the faster they degrade. But there are other nutrients that you liberate for the first time by actually cooking something. So really, it's a happy medium. You've got to cook something enough to get some of the nutritional benefits that you wouldn't otherwise get, but not to such an extent that you destroy other intrinsic nutritional benefits. One great way to do this is you take your vegetable or potato water and you turn it into your gravy. Yes, yes. Okay. Um, there is a question here. Please ask the naked scientist. At the creation of the universe with the Big Bang, basically everything was created out of nothing. Nothing existed. But everything was created out of that. And how did the Big Bang happen if nothing existed? At what was giving it the fuel to bang? 
And then after this event, we suddenly had matter from nowhere. And we had the laws of nature, for example, gravity, the laws that you find in nuclear physics. Where did these laws come from and from what? Where they created during the Big Bang. Rian is just like, I don't get it. And, and I must say, um, Dr. Chris, before you and I started working together, I recall you answering a very brilliant question that was asked by a listener around the creation of earth in relation to what the Bible said and what you believe with science. And I think you were speaking to Reedy, but one of the things that you said was there's religion and science should never happen in the same classroom. And the second thing you said is if indeed um, those things happened, then God did use the right methodology. <laughs> well, I was, um, I would compliment you on having an excellent memory and I wouldn't change my view today, which yes. is that if if you are looking for a moment of creation back in biblical times, then the Big Bang was a moment of creation because that's when this universe popped into existence and we can date it pretty accurately. There are various ways we could do that by looking at how stretched out light is that's still around from the time at which the universe began. And this tells us it was about 13.8 billion years ago that there was this Big Bang. And that's what created the universe. And the universe that we're in, and there may be others, we don't know, but that is everything. And therefore, if nothing was nothing was there before and the universe is everything, then there was nothing. But it came from this moment in time when there was this infinitesimally small but, but extremely energetic point which exploded and expanded and then gave rise to this universe. So there wasn't nothing because there would have been energy and the Big Bang unleashed a barrage of enormous energy and because of Einstein's equation E equals mc squared E energy is equal to m mass times the speed of light squared. Energy and mass are in that respect interchangeable. So if you have energy you have mass and if you have mass you have energy. And so shortly after the Big Bang you're, you've got this release of energy you start to convert that energy into mass following the rules of physics which apply in this universe. And I keep countenancing it by saying this universe because we don't know that there aren't other universes where there may be other and differing rules of physics, but the rules that we play by in this universe, everywhere we look we see the same rules at play. Those are the ones that govern the process of the evolution of our universe. And so we would have started off with energy. Shortly after the Big Bang, energy begins to turn into matter, a material, a mass. That mass is extremely hot, very energetic, but it blows up the universe like a bubble very, very fast, extremely swiftly, much faster than the speed of light. And then the universe, having inflated very, very quickly, goes into a sort of steady state, gentle evolution where it's growing, but only growing very slowly. And then in more recent years, it's begun to grow faster again, probably because as there's more dark energy, the thing we invoke to explain why the universe is getting bigger, that's becoming more abundant greater amounts of dark energy pushes the universe apart faster therefore the more of it you've got the faster the universe is going to grow and early on in the universe when there was all that energy it got converted pretty quickly into material matter mm. mostly hydrogen there was a little bit of helium and a whiff of lithium and those things then began to aggregate and form the first stars 
and the first stars then did amazing physics of creating all of the other elements that we see in the periodic table, both during their lifetime but also in their death throes when the big ones blasted themselves to pieces. So our bodies, the elements which are in us, the carbon, the phosphorus, the nitrogen, the oxygen, the sulphur, etc., that has all come from stars which have existed previously in the universe, blown themselves to pieces and then spewed out their guts into the universe and that material ended up here, aggregating to make our planet and ultimately aggregated to make each of us. Boggles your mind, doesn't it? Definitely does. All right, a voice note. Let's try that again. A voice note. Hi, Rilewukhile. It's Max here. Will you please pause this one to the naked scientist? Um, crimination. When one is being criminated, and uh, I've often seen that there's a lot of logs and the coffee that they put in terms to criminate a person. And when they are giving the ashes, they are giving ashes that fit in a 700 mil bottle or in a small coffin. How do they separate that uh, to give me ashes uh, of my belongings uh, from the logs and stuff that fit in a 700 mil box? Or Bokro. Oh, interesting one. Mm. Well, it depends how a person is cremated. Most modern crematoria take a person in their coffin and then they put them into a effectively a stove with very high temperature using, say, gas flames, for example, which incinerates the coffin and the individual at very high temperature until everything just breaks down into effectively dust. But what's returned to you is going to be a mixture of them what was around them and the coffin they were in so therefore you don't just get back the bits of your person you get back the bits of the person plus how you sent them to the crematorium so when and when we burn a body most of a person's body is water two-thirds of us is just water and so very very much um, you you lose two-thirds of your weight straight away because all the water evaporates. So we take up, when you're just reduced to your dry mass, much less space, but you'll certainly be a mixture, not just of you, but of the things that you, you took to the crematorium with you when you are cremated. All right, we've got MJ in Pretoria. Hi, MJ. Hello, Rilebukhila. Hello, Doctor. Um, my question is, atmospheric pressure uh, has an influence on, on fluid in general, be it liquid or... Okay. I want to know what is the effect of atmospheric pressure, especially on fighter jets, because they make maneuvers at a very, very fast pace and they change heights at very, very fast pace, at very, very at short space of time. So I want to know, does that not um, disturb the fuel flowing and the, the fuel, fuel flow and all of those gases that uh, play a role in that? I'm not sure if my question is clear. Thanks, MJ. Yes, I, I, get, I get you. The answer is it does make a difference. It makes a difference especially for the pilot, and the pilots will, through these massive changes in pressure, experience a whole range of things, as well as the effects of G-force just on making these manoeuvres. So one of the things they do is breathe pressurised air feeds so that they don't at very high altitude pass out because otherwise if they weren't breathing an enriched supply of air enriched for oxygen then if you were just breathing at ambient pressure you would lose consciousness very quickly so the number one thing to worry about is is the pilot okay and they are fed with an air supply to make sure they're okay in other respects with uh, going from a low altitude to a high altitude yes you're quite right your engine is going to burn 
different amounts of fuel because the air it's passing through is thinner therefore it's doing less work we learned that earlier in the program so it doesn't have to work as hard to push the plane through the air because the plane is actually uh, encountering less air but it's got less oxygen in the air that's coming in so it therefore needs to burn less fuel and put less fuel into the engine to run with less oxygen so all of this needs to be compensated and accounted for at one altitude over another if you're in a slower moving aircraft then you've got someone worrying about that usually a computer but that is adjusted and changed and that's part and parcel of when you fly the navigator will be working out what the optimum altitudes to go at are so that you burn the least fuel to keep the plane aloft and this will include flying at certain altitudes to get um, through thinner air and so on when you're doing it with a fighter jet obviously you're making enormous changes much more rapidly but normally you're not climbing over such great distances upwards that you're going to need to make dramatic changes but th this can all be done by a computer which is continuously looking at the burn the fuel burn rate the engine performance and so on and will be adjusting second by second what's going on to give them optimal performance because when you're a fighter pilot traveling at a thousand miles an hour 1500 kilometers an hour every second counts thank you so much dr chris smith we will be back together next week